All right, 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you haven't uh, found your way there yet. It's been said that liars make the best promises. There's some truth to that, but we should always remember that God is not a man that he should lie. So when we encounter promises from God in his word, we can stand firmly on them. Because the Bible tells us that not only is God not a man that he should lie, but that it was impossible for him to lie. Like God cannot do this. We've been unpacking the promises that God gave to David and what we doctrinally refer to as the Davidic covenant. And doctrinally, what we see when we look at this covenant is that Christ, his rule and his reign are the focal points in this covenant. And when you consider that and you look at your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that theme just naturally and obviously unfolds in terms of what is the thrust or the focus of the Word of God. But in unpacking the doctrinal details of this covenant, what we're also doing along the way is identifying some takeaways for us personally in the church age. There are some things that we can see. There are some things that run parallel with respect to the promises that God gave to David that involved Israel and Christ and all of that. And we can say, wow, I can see the word of God, how those, <laughs> those things in principle, uh, we, we see it for us too. And so we want to hold on to these things. So we're going to continue looking at that today in terms of identifying some takeaways as we wrap up standing on the promises of God. And my hope is that you're not just standing on these things while we're looking at them, while we're in this space here in 2 Samuel, but that beyond you would stand on these things, right? This team going to Vietnam, they're not going to Vietnam. Andrew is not uprooting his family. He's not leading a team of people across the world to stand on nothing. They're standing on some promises. I can promise you that. They're standing on the promises that they've received from God in His Word, and we must do the same thing where we are. But verse 14 is where we start this morning. For God says, I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. The Bible tells us that God is glorious in holiness. He's a consuming fire. He's majestic. He's incredible. He's magnificent. He's righteous. He's light. He's omnipotent. He's holy, holy, holy. He is in a category in and of himself. I mean, there is no one, there is nothing like him. There is no rival. There's no one that we can compare him to. There's nothing that we can compare him to. He's God. And we're just scratching the surface on that. So to hear him say, I will be his father and he will be my son, brings us face to face with his mercy and grace. 
How is it that a God could be that great, that grand, that mighty, but yet that personal? Who are we that he's mindful of us? The terms father and son denotes a personal relationship. Now listen, if that has somehow become small to you, if that is not deep to you, then please hear me, something awry has happened in your heart. If it has become trivial to you, if it's a light thing that God is personal with you, that you can have a personal relationship with God. If that has become boring to you, if that has become somehow insignificant, uh, something is off in your heart. That God, no, listen, that God knows everything you could possibly know about this guy right here and says, I want to have a personal relationship with you. Come on. The sixth promise was a descendant whom God would have a personal relationship with. Historically, Solomon was the immediate focus, and we know that based on what we read in verse 13. And at one point, Solomon had just that. He did have a personal relationship with God. Look at 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 5. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. 1 Kings 9 and verse 2, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time, as he had appeared unto him at Gibeon. It doesn't get more personal than that. That God made two personal appearances to Solomon. There was a personal relationship there. So in the sixth promise, we have the promise of a personal relationship. It's a promise. God said, I will be his father and he shall be my son. That's a promise. Writing to the church at Corinth, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.18, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Listen, can I just, as, as, as plainly as I know how to articulate and convey to all of you in life fellowship, like if there's anything I would want you to hear from me, if there's anything I want you to know about my heart and my burden for you, it would be this. More than anything, I want you to walk with God personally. I want you to have a personal walk with Him. I want you to have a Philippians 3.10 heart that you may know Him. I want you to know Him. I, I want there to be a fire and a passion. I, I want your heart to, to burn like an oven for God. I, I want you to immerse yourself in personal worship and adoration. 
I want you to seek His face. I, I, I want you to love Him with everything in you. I want you to desire Him. As it relates to that, I carry a lingering concern for you, for MBT. I carry a lingering concern for the Living Faith Fellowship Churches because we are the byproduct of a people who believe deeply in the inspiration and preservation of the Word of God. We come from a people who stood fast. They held fast to sound doctrine. That's where we come from. However, many in our history, many of those people left their first love. They did what the church at Ephesus did, Revelation chapter 2. Listen, the issue was not that they abandon the King James Bible. That wasn't the issue. The issue wasn't that they stepped away from sound doctrine. The issue was they loved those things first. And more. That's the lingering concern. Never walked away from the Word of God. Never taught weak or light doctrine or heresy. It was that their heartbeat for the King James position thumped louder and harder than their heartbeat for God. Their heartbeat to show the Calvinists how wrong they were was greater than their love for God. You hear what I'm saying? That's the lingering concern. Because I have seen where that goes. I have seen how that movie ends. And it's not good. And many of those folks in heart and character, listen to me, were nothing like God Himself. They were not like God. They were not godly people, many of them. They lacked charity. They were not merciful. They were not kind and tender-hearted. They could not disagree with others graciously and patiently. They were carnal. Because I'm right and you're not, that gives me permission now to be unchristlike toward you. Unfortunately, that type of pride and arrogance is so contagious and it's so easy to pass on. And it happened. 
And in churches like MBT, uh, we can so easily listen. We can so easily, and this is so dangerous, we can so easily equate Bible knowledge with a relationship with God. We so easily make those synonymous. We so easily make those automatic because I know the Word of God. That means I have a relationship with Him. That's the lingering concern. That's what I often go to bed with, what I wake up with, and what I carry. And sometimes things are said and done that validate that lingering concern. Please, one of the proofs that our relationship with God is in trouble is as we are growing in knowledge and doctrine, we are becoming critical and harsh toward others. Our knowledge is growing. Our grasp of Scripture, and we become doctrinally astute. We're very precise. We can show you the very fine details of Scripture. Yet we eviscerate people with our words. We're very critical of anyone who dares to think differently than we think or do something differently than we would do, and somehow that is okay in the eyes of God. It's not, because it's not Him. Listen, I am for everything that we do in this place as it relates to how we view the Word of God, how we teach the Word of God, the premium that we place on it, LFBI, all of that. I'm for all of it. I encourage all of it. Get everything that you can get, but please, please, when it comes to personally walking with God, this is my heart. This is the visual from the Word of God. John 13, 23. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of His disciples whom Jesus loved. Some modern versions replace bosom with reclining or sitting next to or breast, but what you miss in that is you miss what is trying to be communicated. Because when you're talking about the bosom from, from an anatomy perspective, you're not just talking about Jesus' chest, but you're talking about what it enclosed his heart. So John was reclining and he, he placed himself as close as you could place yourself to the heart of Jesus. Which is where you want to be. Which is where you and I ought to covet to be. That's the place that, that we ought to, Lord, I want to be as close as I can be to your heart. If we're not careful, Lord, we want your mind, but we're not really after your heart. This is what I'm saying. You can get his mind without getting his heart. It's his heart that you got to get as well. 
I think you would agree that many people consider the book of Revelation to be the deepest book in the word of God. I would be in that camp. John never identified himself as the author of his gospel, the gospel of John. But you can't get out of the book of Revelation, out of the first verse of the book, without knowing that it was John who wrote it. The man who wrote the deepest book in the Bible got as close as anybody could get to the heart of Christ. How about that? You can swim in the deep end of Scripture and you can mesmerize people with your knowledge of it and your grasp of doctrine. But please, God will notice very carefully if that is the case and you not having a John 13, 23 relationship with Him. God will pay very close attention to that. That you've got this phenomenal handle on His Word. You are as deep as they come. Yet when it comes to your heart and His heart, they're galaxies away. Some form of the word love is found in John's Gospel 57 times. More than you find it in the other three Gospels combined. 44 combined in the other three. Please, I ask you to hear this. When it comes to leading people in ministry and appointing people to positions and leadership, from my vantage point, the ultimate prerequisite is not how much Bible they know. That, that's not the ultimate prerequisite. What I look for more than anything is do they love God? Do they love Him? Do they love Him? Do they love Him first? Do they love Him more than anyone and anything? Because if they do, they'll not only have His mind, they're going to have His heart. And they're going to love people. And they're going to serve people. And can I tell you, they're going to be a delight and a joy to lead. Because the last thing they want to do is fight and kick and scream with me the whole way. Do they love God? Do they love people? Do they have His heart? If they do, that will take care of everything else. They'll grow in the knowledge of His Word. They'll grow in doctrine. They'll get better as a teacher. All of that stuff. Now, in the biblical sense, an unmistakable marker in a true father-son relationship 
is the loving discipline of the Father. And we see the rest of that in verse 14. Look at it again. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Now, from a doctrinal perspective, once again, not to our surprise, Christ emerges as the focus. Can't miss that. Look at Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Christ paid the price. He paid the price for our transgressions and iniquity. So in this seventh promise, what we see is a descendant whom God would chasten if he committed iniquity. And historically, Solomon did just that, did he not? He did. I've said it before. Solomon was the wisest fool to have ever lived. Think about that for a second. It's hard to fathom, right? But he did commit iniquity and God did chasten him. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. And the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon, Hadad, the Edomite. He was of the king's seed in Edom. Verse 23. And God stirred him up another adversary, Rezon the son of Eliada, which fled from his lord Hadadezer, king of Zobah. Verse 26, And Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, the Ephrathite of Zerada, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow woman, even lifted up his hand against the king. So uh, from within and without, God raised up or allowed men to attack Solomon and his kingdom. But what led to this is what you read leading up to verse 14 in 1 Kings chapter 11, where you see Solomon essentially, he face planted spiritually. And just face planted and just took a nosedive into idolatry and grieved God greatly. He committed iniquity, evil. And God kept His promise and began to chasten Him. Fathers, if I could say something to you about, about fatherhood, about, about training children, something you need to understand, and that is God did not, nor does He make idle threats, neither should we. This was not an idle threat to Solomon. God told him. God made it clear. If you commit iniquity, I will chasten you. And he did. Solomon committed iniquity and God kept his word. We don't make idle threats. Fathers, as we continue to move through 2 Samuel, we're going to come face to face with David as a father. And let me give you a spoiler alert. I know we hate spoiler alerts. Great king, great warrior, great provider, terrible father. Terrible father. 
Sweet psalmist? Yes, he was. Brave? No doubt about it. Fearless? Yes. A man's man? You know it. Strong? Yes, he was. Fatherhood? He missed it. And two of the main reasons that he did not excel in the area of fatherhood are right here in verse 14. Number one, he lacked a personal relationship with his sons. That will become evident as we turn the pages. And two, he was slack in disciplining his sons. These are the same things God talked about in verse 14. I will be his father. He will be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him. Personal relationship, discipline. Fathers, it's great that you provide for your children, but if a personal relationship with you doesn't come with that, all you're doing is sowing seeds of destruction. Next, when fathers fail to discipline their children and love early, they unknowingly encourage them toward rebellion later. I mean, you are essentially taking them by the hand and ushering them right into the living room of rebellion. Now listen, I recognize that uh, I've had to come to recognize that in the church today, there are a number of believers who do not agree with God when it comes to what God has to say and what He has said about parenting. I understand that. And if they were to be honest, they believe that psychologists actually know better than God when it comes to how to train children. So we'll listen to what they have to say, and, and if they say that this is barbaric and ancient, and, and well then, why would I ever do that? But I want you to consider the word choice in verse 14. If he commit what? Not sin. If he commit iniquity. Now, iniquity is a form of sin. Yes, it is. But what you find when you study the term iniquity in your Bible very clearly is that it is clearly associated with wickedness. It wasn't just that, it wasn't that Solomon, it wasn't an issue of him being imperfect. Not talking about that. Not talking about him tripping and stumbling here and there. No, 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 no. God was very clear. If he were to commit iniquity. I've heard it said before, and I agree with it. All sin is sin, but not all sin is the same. See, there are some things that 
that a child can do. There are some things that they can get into. It's one thing to, okay, I, I told you to clean your room and, and I came back and you didn't clean your room. Okay, we, can, we, can, we, we got to talk through that and work on that. But there are some things that they can do where it's a different conversation. It's a different approach. And when you consider Lucifer, this gets punctuated for us. Think about this word iniquity. Ezekiel 28, 15, Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till what? What? Iniquity was found in thee. This is serious. Iniquity was found in Lucifer, and what did God do? He chastened him, and he will ultimately chasten him. Please, I have seen this movie too many times. It's a painful watch. It's a painful watch. Children who do not receive or experience a personal relationship with their fathers and do not receive consistent, loving discipline from their fathers struggle greatly with relationships and life later. They struggle greatly. Listen, they struggle to love and follow God. They struggle with being under authority. They struggle with being over people properly. They struggle with not being the centerpiece in relationships. They struggle with not having it their way. They struggle with not getting their way. They struggle. They don't know how to die to self. They don't recognize or honor boundaries. They're selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. They come apart when things don't go their way. God forbid that they experience a setback. God forbid something doesn't go their way. God forbid they have to wait for something. God forbid they have to put someone first other than themselves. They're like a wild stallion. And if we keep following the train of thought with Lucifer, when the Antichrist sits in the temple of God during the tribulation, who is he going to show himself to be? Say it with me. Who? Yes, God. I need you to hear this. A child that is not chastened for their iniquities will eventually become a God unto themselves. You show me a child 
who did not have a personal relationship with their father, you show me a child who did not receive consistent, loving discipline from their father, and I will show you a child who is going to struggle the rest of their life apart from a a right relationship with God. They're going to struggle with not playing God in their life. And this is where, when they get to this point, listen, the only person that they will listen to is themselves. It doesn't matter what the Word of God says. It doesn't matter what a pastor says. It doesn't matter what a police officer says. It doesn't matter what a judge says. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. Doesn't matter what a grandparent says, doesn't matter what a brother or a sister says, they have become a God unto themselves. They are the sole, final, absolute authority in their life. And that is immensely grievous. It's grievous. I can tell you, our son will be 19 here in a little bit. Bree will be 18 this year. They are not perfect, never have been, never will be. But I'm going to tell you right now, uh, one thing that I locked in on, I mean with a razor focus, was the manifestation of pride and rebellion. When that was manifested in my home, I had to win that fight every single time. And by by God's grace for His glory, I did. You can be weak. I get that. You can trip. You can stumble. You can fall. I can get that. But what you're not going to do, you are not going to blatantly disobey me and your mother in this home. You are not going to raise your voice at my wife and talk to her in a certain way. You will not be sarcastic. You will not be snarky. You will not be disrespectful to my wife. You will only speak to her and treat her with absolute kindness all the time. You will obey the first time, every time. When I travel, when I come back, I will sit down with your mother and I will get a report. You want to make sure the report that I get is consistent with the expectations that I set before you before I left. You are not going to treat her like garbage and slam doors and call her names the women who brought you into this world, the women who cleaned up your vomit at two o'clock in the morning, the woman who has done countless loads of laundry, the woman who has cleaned your dirty diapers, who has sacrificed and will sacrifice anything for you, and you're going to tell her, I hate you? No. 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 That's iniquity. <laughs> We won that battle at the age of six. 
I'll never forget it. It was, it was intense. One of my children crossed the line with, with my wife, and, and she told me about it, and we had a conference. And I made it clear, I want to make sure you understand, from this day forward, that is my wife before she's your mother. I don't talk to her that way. So you're not going to. So as long as you stay in this house, this is how you're going to address her moving forward. And that child to this day holds the door for, for Lori, only kind. The next morning came into my room, tapped me on the shoulder and gave me a note. I still have it. Dad, I'm sorry for disrespecting your wife. Hey, I love you. As long as we're in agreement, we're good moving forward. And we've been good moving forward. I'm not boasting. I am not father of the year, but what I am telling you is when, when pride and arrogance and iniquity, when those things manifest, you got to win. You have to win. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. It might seem too strong to connect children with iniquity, but here's the question. According to the word of God, what is bound in the heart of every child? Foolishness. Not wisdom. Not obedience, not humility, not brokenness, foolishness. Have you ever studied foolishness in Proverbs? That's what's bound in the heart of every child. Proverbs 10.23, it is as sport to a fool to do mischief but a man of understanding hath wisdom. You know what that word sport means? Laughter. It's laughter. To do mischief. To a foolish child, mischief is fun. Uh, this word mischief, listen, is translated in your Old Testament Wickedness, wicked, lewd, lewdness, heinous, crime. Now, as it relates to God and the covenant that he made with David, the takeaway for us is found in the continuation of the thought in verse 15. Notice verse 14 ends with a colon. Verse 15, but my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. God is awesome because of his ability to perfectly balance mercy and discipline. He balances it perfectly, does he not? Balance is often the problem with earthly fathers, right? 
They're either all discipline or all mercy. That's the issue. God says we've got to balance both. They have to coexist in a proper balance. But God never promised Saul a house. Never promised King Saul a lineage, right? But he did promise David one. And if God were to ever remove his mercy from David, what would that make him? A liar. Promise breaker. Hence, the continued survival of the nation of Israel, including their survival that's going to happen in the Great Tribulation. As horrific as that will be, they are going to survive it because of God's faithfulness. So in this seventh promise, we see the promise of permanency. The promise of permanency. The permanency of the covenant is reinforced in verse 16 as God repeated the promise, if you would. Despite what Solomon and others would do, this would be permanent. But do we not have the promise of permanency? Don't we? I'm so glad that we do. We have the promise of permanency. Look at Ephesians 2. I'm almost done. Verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Sadly, there are some in Christ who wrestle and struggle with eternal security. Can I ask you, does this sound like a God who would take salvation from someone that he's given it to? No way. No way. Listen, the believer in Jesus Christ is permanently saved, seated, and sealed. That's the truth. 